Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the dream sequence, she's almost angelic and she's got this long flowing hair. And then the version of her in this world is hair shaved, like mm-hmm. much more of a badass. The film was composed of dream state and nightmare state and not really even reality. Welcome to today's episode of Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers to see if it still plays for today's generation. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker. I'm an instructor at the Los Angeles Film School, and I am CEO and co-founder of Electrocast Media. I'm David Townsick. I think I have seen every film that Terry Gilliam has ever made. And I'm Grace Chapman. I am an aspiring screenwriter and a film lover. Hello, my name is Olivia or Olive Goldberg, and I am a film and sociology major at Emerson College, and I'm super excited to be here tonight on your show. I also have my own podcast called Sonic Impact that I co-host with my dad, and it's the podcast where guests tell life-changing stories about the musical artists who most impacted their lives. So if you're a music lover like I am, please check it out. I'm going to have to catch that, too. I'm yeah, that sounds lover. so cool. We all love music, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's incredible stories where people are actually meeting musicians and their lives wow. changed by Elvis Costello. I mean, crazy stuff. That sounds awesome. My life was changed by Elvis Costello, and I never even met him. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Still counts. All right, so this week we watched the 1985 science fiction black comedy satire Brazil, directed by Terry Gilliam, starring Jonathan Price who you may know as the Grand Sept from Game of Thrones, Kim Grease, Robert De Niro, Michael Palin, Catherine Hellman, Ian Holm, and Bob Hoskins. The film has a unique release history, which was a very public feud between Gilliam and Universal Studios chief Sid Sheinberg over releasing Gilliam's cut of the movie. David, before I talk about the plot, do you want to say a little bit about Terry Gilliam? Sure. Terry Gilliam was born in Minnesota in 1940. And he was raised here in Los Angeles. So after college, he got a job in advertising. But because he looked like a hippie, he was constantly being pulled over by the police. And they used to harangue and harass him, which developed in him a really anti-establishment feeling from a very young age. He moved to Greenwich Village, where he met Harvey Kurtzman, the man who founded Mad Magazine. Gilliam was a big fan. And he gave Gilliam a job on a zine he had started called Help which R. Crumb got a start from that too, Gilbert Shelton, a lot of great people. And Gilliam met John Cleese there, 
and did a funny bit with him where he took pictures of Cleese and did drawings. So Help Magazine folded really fast. And Gilliam moved to London. This is in the mid-60s now, where he got a job as an animator for a children's TV show called Do Not Adjust Your Set. Some of the people on that show were Michael Palin, Eric Idle, and Terry Jones. And in 1969, as I'm sure all you Python fans know, they formed Monty Python's Flying Circus. Gilliam was one of the six members of that troupe. And his job was to make the animations that would tie all the sketches together because the other comedians didn't want to have beginnings and they didn't want their things to end with a punchline. They wanted something more freeform and anarchic. So they needed that. The TV show only ran three and a half seasons, but it led to movies. So when Monty Python and the Holy Grail was conceived, Terry Jones decided that he wanted to direct the actors, a thankless job when it came to directing the other Pythons. And Gilliam had maybe an even worse job, which was taking on the visual direction and the production design. They had a budget of 175,000 pounds. Gilliam continued. He did Jabberwocky. And then he did a short for Monty Python's Meaning of Life, which was called The Crimson Permanent Assurance. It's really great. You got to see it. So it got a lot of attention. Then he made Time Bandits, a family film that was a big, big hit. So this was his chance to make the film he had been dreaming of for almost a decade, which he was calling 1984 and a half. Uh, 1984 after the Orwell book, and also after eight and a half, the Fellini film that he loved. It got renamed a lot of times, but it ended up being called Brazil. Um, let me give a little plot summary. <clears throat> the story was inspired by George Orwell's classic dystopian novel, 1984, as David mentioned but in a really wacky way. It's about a low-level government functionary named Sam Lowry, who's living in a hyper-consumerist totalitarian future. He daydreams about being a winged hero, rescuing the woman of his dreams. Well, when a technical glitch, literally a fly landing in a machine. Literally a bug in the, yeah, a bug in the, in the machine. <laughs> right. Sends a SWAT-like team to violently invade an innocent man's apartment and abduct and ultimately kill him. Sam, as a government functionary, is assigned to deliver the government refund check for the death. He discovers that the woman living above the flat is actually the woman he's been daydreaming about. And she's an independent spirit. She really wants nothing to do with Sam at the beginning. And then what follows is this, I can only describe it as a hilarious maze of maddening bureaucracy, rampant consumerism malfunctioning air ducts, grotesque plastic surgery, Victorian-style science fiction contraptions, mysterious explosions that are blamed on terrorists that we never, ever see. And ultimately, he's betrayed by a system committed to its own perpetuation. The movie is clearly anti-authoritarian, as David mentioned. When we get into the release, it oddly mirrors the plot of the movie itself in a bizarre way. But I'd rather talk to our young viewers and I'm going to start with our new guest, Olive. What was your take on this after seeing Brazil? It definitely took me aback. You know, when you watch a movie and you're just not really sure what just happened, it was one of those for me. I definitely found it entertaining and intriguing. I think the other part of it was that it's one of those movies where you're just trying so hard on the first watch to figure out what is going on and like what world you're in. So I think a lot of the the commentary went over my head while watching. And then after having some time to think about it and do a little research, 
I definitely started realizing like, oh, that's really smart. That's really interesting. I think wacky is a good word choice Mm -hmm. to describe the movie. Are you watching alone or with a friend or? Yeah, I was with my girlfriend actually. And were you guys laughing? Were you mortified? Were you bored? What were your feelings while you were watching it? I think we reacted pretty similarly. We definitely were laughing throughout. I love the scene where the guy has all the assistants and people just blabbering at him as he's walking through the hall. Mm -hmm. We were cracking up during that and just giving each other looks of like, what just happened with the dream sequences? It's very, very surreal. So you're just trying to to keep up with what's going on, but we definitely enjoyed the viewing. Good, good, good. Grace, your first time seeing it as well? I had seen bits of it before. I didn't realize, but when the Robert De Niro scene came in, I was like, I've seen this, but I don't remember when I watched it. I just know I've seen that scene. (laughs) And it's so unexpected to see him in this role. So that was really fun for me. And I really identified with the anti-authority message. This was the first time De Niro did something that was not a lead role, where he played a supporting character. And in the documentary that I saw, the editor talked about how they would look at the dailies and they'd be like, okay, he's not really doing much. And then they cut it together and like, oh my God, he's great. People have said that about him before. I think actually De Niro wanted the role that Michael Palin played, Jack Lint, but uh, Gilliam had already promised it to his friend Michael Palin. So he agreed to take this little part because he just liked the script so much. Do you want to describe the two roles, the Jack Lint role and De Niro's role? Jack Lint, played by Michael Palin, is... From Monty um, Python, yeah. From Monty Python. And so he's very funny, but he's not very funny in this movie, except in a dry way. You know, he's not the usual Palin we're used to that does a lot of faces and funny voices. He actually plays a conformist guy who's pretty powerful, doesn't want any trouble. But the problem is his job is basically to torture people. And sometimes he kills them because they won't talk. In fact, one of the funniest things, the first time you see him in his smock at work, he's got blood stains all over his shirt. And then there's his little daughter sitting there. It's actually played by Terry Gilliam's own daughter. He's like three years old. You know, he's very matter of fact about his work. It's like, oh, you know, it's a nine to five thing. He puts on his smock. He takes no responsibility for killing that guy for the mistake. He's like, I thought they brought me the right man. Yeah, I mean, you brought me the wrong man. I mean, how did I know that he had a heart condition? You know, it wasn't on his paperwork. And that's the way this whole society is. Everything's about paperwork, organization. Just everybody is obsessed with bureaucracy. The whole plot is pretty much driven by bureaucracy Mm -hmm. and nobody's thinking about the effect of what they're doing, what they're doing to each other. It's an incredibly uncompassionate society. And I'd say even the main character, the hero is pretty uncompassionate. I mean, he doesn't think about anybody until, you know, when he's finally developing a relationship with this woman he's been pining for the whole time, Jill. And she is a humanist somehow. She's almost the only one in the film. And she starts to change him in a way, but he, that's one question I had for everybody, which is, is he an idiot? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? What do you think of him? I thought he was kind of an idiot. (laughs) He was irritating me the whole time. And obviously the woman was not interested in him and kind of afraid of him. And he was just pushing it too far and just an airhead really. And I, didn't like his daydreams. I thought the cinematography was beautiful and the effects were great, but I just, the 80s glam aesthetic is not. 
Oh yeah, what, I don't right. When he has the wings and that hair, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I was like, he wants to be this guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's that kind of guy. But it's well, like, Icarus, right? It's a fantasy. He wants to, yeah, yeah. fly. Yeah, he's escaping. Know, escaping. Exactly. Right. But is Terry Gilliam saying he's like all of us, that we're just people that occasionally try to do something to break out, but really the system's just going to slam us back in our place? Mm-hmm. Gilliam says a lot of times, you know, there's no escape except into your own imagination or madness. Right, which goes to the end of the film. Now, Grace, maybe you can give a little description of the Robert De Niro character, because he's so unusual in this world. Yeah, so he's a freelance technician, I guess. <laughs> So instead of having to call, what was it, emergency, central services, instead of calling them, he shows up so you don't have to deal with any paperwork. He just arrives and gets the job done. And that's somehow illegal in this world. And he's just super zany and like a really interesting, funny character. And then he just kind of succumbs to the paperwork. It all catches up to him and destroys him in the end. Uh, yeah, you literally see him smothered by yeah, paperwork. Yeah, exactly. I liked that scene a lot. So I feel like I'm an advantage because I've seen this film about four times. I thought that too. It's like, why is it illegal? But if you think about it, everything does make sense the more times you see the film. And each time you see it, it makes more sense. So one thing is these ducts that are everywhere that carry all this information. He's sort of predicting the internet in a funny way, but it's like a steampunk version of the internet. Everyone's dressed in 40s stuff. All the machinery is high tech, but it looks like it's built on 1940s technology. Or earlier. Or or 19th century technology. Yeah, right. You know, instead of big screen TVs, they have tiny little TVs, but a big magnifying glass in front of them. So the reason it would be illegal for somebody to fix stuff with that paperwork is because all these ducts, you know, they're obsessed with collecting information, controlling information. And so somebody that comes in and changes the system that brings you information or brings you all these other things they bring you is denying them information. It it seems like the whole government is nothing but information services, information retrieval, which is the place that tortures and interrogates you, and then the police that are enforcing those two departments. Well, I guess that goes to the question of, do you think that the world that's depicted in this film has any relationship to either the world then or the world now. So Grace, you did some research on the times of the movie. Was there anything happening at that time that might have partially inspired what was going on or? Yes, definitely. So like David said, it kind of seems like they almost predicted the internet and there were a lot of technical advancements going on at the time, especially with computers and home entertainment. And then also I learned that the Reagan administration was really skilled with PR and the use of media. And it's interesting to see all the propaganda and misinformation throughout the whole film. So a lot of similarities going on in the film and during the time in American history. Really interesting. And considering it was released the year 1984, which is emblematic of dystopian society, there's something there. So in a sense, Sam has a position of privilege. And I want to know what Grace and Olivia, your feelings about this. By pursuing the investigation, by pursuing the woman he's attracted to, by going up against the system, even in a small way, he's threatening his position of privilege, right? Did you guys feel any sense of danger from that? He seemed somewhat harmless to me, but just the way he went about pursuing his love interest was just 
a little creepy and out of touch, but he didn't seem <laughs> like a danger really, but definitely abusing his position. Olivia? Yeah, I was just going to say that I agree. And I also think it's interesting that he never really seemed too interested in his position of power. Like in the beginning, he's got this promotion for this fancy job and the mom's like, you got to take it. What are you doing? You got to take it. And he's just not really interested. I don't know exactly why that was, but it's anti-interested. I think he doesn't want anything to do with the society. We see from the beginning, he just wants to escape. He has dreams about flying away, but uh, I don't think he thinks he can fight it either. The, uh, the weirdest thing about the film for me is that he dreams about this woman. Then in the film, he sees her, the exact woman in his dreams, which is odd. And their whole relationship, it's off compared with the rest of the movie, which is all very crisp and very smart. I mean, do you think it's possible that Jill, his love interest, is actually another aspect of him? And I'll just give you three reasons why that occurs to me. One is that he already has seen her before he's seen her. And then when he does first see her, he sees her in a mirror. So they, they've cut a hole in Jill's floor so the SWAT team can go down and grab the guy downstairs. And he looks and there's a mirror. And in the mirror, he sees a little reflection of her looking down to see what's going on. Then he grabs the mirror, but he just sees himself because he's lost her. It's okay. interesting. I'll step in for a sec. The scene where they actually get together in bed, she's put on a wig and it's almost like from a different movie, right? It's like a gauzy romantic. So whether that's supposed to express their feelings that they're both having or whether it's kind of another fantasy sequence for him, maybe that's part of what you're thinking. Yeah. Also, his mother becomes Jill through plastic uh -huh. surgery. You know, she gets younger and younger and younger. And finally, she looks exactly like Jill. They actually substitute the actress, Kim yeah. Reese, in one shot, right? But I thought that was just him mentally going to like a whole nother level of Oedipal complex or something. Yeah, something. So I just wonder about that. Jill kind of becomes a symbol in this movie. She's not a very complete character. There's one story behind that, though. Gilliam had a lot of actresses that wanted the role. Ellen Barkin, Roseanne Arquette, Jamie Lee Curtis, Ray Dawn Chong, Michelle Pfeiffer, Rebecca De Mornay. And they decided to cast an unknown. He didn't want an actress with the baggage of some past roles. And he regretted it later because Kim Greist was inexperienced. And even though she, I think she's very good in it, uh, in the parts we see, but apparently she's not good in a lot of scenes that he cut out or he didn't think she was good. He also had a lot of trouble with her. De Niro can be a bit of a prima donna, famously, which he was in this film too. And she decided to be like De Niro because De Niro is getting so much attention and he had to go and tell her, look, until you've accomplished what Robert De Niro has done, I'm not going to put up with that kind of behavior. So anyway, they cut her role way down and it had the effect of making Sam's role bigger. And then in some ways she became just sort of a foil for him, not really a complete character on her own. I did feel like I wanted more of her and from her. I didn't really like her performance that much. I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> but she was a little... I don't want to say boring, but she wasn't very captivating in her performance to me. Yeah, I have unclear opinions on her completely, but I did find it strange and interesting how 
in the dream sequence, she seems almost angelic and she's got this long flowing hair and she's in the sky. And then the version of her in this world is like hair shaved, like Mm -hmm. much more of a badass, much more intense. Yeah, I just think the dream aspect and the surrealism part of it and how that ties into the real world is really interesting too. And there's clearly some parallels, but also some very sharp contrasts. And I've, I've read something about it like someone saying that the film was composed of dream state and nightmare state and not really even reality. I love that. Super interesting. Yeah. My favorite scene with her, I think is when she goes into that big bureaucratic building and she confronts the guy at the desk in front and there's this weird camera device that's kind of poking her in the head. (laughs) (laughs) She shows a lot of grit there. And I feel like we kind of get on her side at that moment. Mm Mm-hmm. And she is trying to do the right thing and she's fighting for justice in a small way, which she ends up not really being able because they just send her in circles trying to get paperwork mm-hmm. done. Mm. Actually, let me ask a question here. I'll go to you first, Grace. Did you have a favorite character in the movie? I really liked the mom. I loved all the scenes she was in. She was just so campy and visually appealing, but I didn't like Sam <laughs> and Jill, yeah. she. I think if there was more of her, it would have been a better balancing act maybe. But yeah, the mom was the most entertaining for me. <laughs> and also her, her surgeon too. He was funny. Yeah, what about the costumes? They were incredible. Yeah, and I, I noticed the 40s costumes and I thought that was interesting because that was when 1984 was written, right? In 1948, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. He flipped the numbers. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. What about the hat that's a shoe? Oh, yeah, that was that was too much. (laughs) So funny. I lost it at that. Mm -hmm. She worked it, though. Olivia, (laughs) what about you? Did you have a favorite character? Yeah, it's a tough question. I think I didn't feel like I connected super deeply because I didn't love any of the characters. Mm -hmm. My favorite movies, I just I love the characters and I care so much about them. And this one, I was just like, I'm not really that invested in any of you. So I would agree that I probably like the mom the most for entertainment and also the mom's friend who kept getting the plastic surgery going wrong. And then she kept more. And then she turns into a casket full of weird jelly and bones. I was just, I thought that was hilarious. Like each time you see her, it's worse. Like at one point she doesn't have a nose. <laughs> and then she loses the whole face. It's just <laughs> But she's always cheery about it. And she's like pulling like lingerie out of her, like, you know, garters out of her back. Doctor it's says it's all good. It'll be fine soon. I'll, soon I'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of liked her daughter that they keep trying to fix him up oh, with. Right. Oh, my God. Yes. She's she, like, I she, don't like you either. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> she does this one amazing take in the film. She's not a well-known actress, at least in movies. But she has this one take where she goes from really mad to, like, pretending to be nice to, like, hating him. In the space of two seconds, she goes to like four different emotional expressions. Isn't there a scene too where he smacks into her as he's getting up or something like that? And she makes this kind of crazy face, but she's always trying to maintain because it's society, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone has to maintain appearances. That's why when the restaurant they're in blows up, they put a little screen so that they won't have to (laughs) see the people dying and bleeding out behind them. (laughs) That seemed like something that would happen today. All right. I mean, that kind of goes to the question of the whole totalitarian world. Are we living in that world today? Or would we have a danger of living in that world? Are we getting closer to it? Or is it getting further away? 
Mm. I think it's here in many ways and I think we're getting closer and I hate to say it. I mean, I think in many ways there's a lot of positive forces acting against this type of society, but there's also a lot of forces working to make it a lot worse and a lot more restrictive and conformative. And it's just unbelievable what's happening. Yeah, this movie has no time, right? I mean, you said it's the future and it seems like the future because as far as we know, nothing like this has ever happened exactly. But it's also the past and it's the present. And I feel like uh, that's not on purpose. I think this comes out of his experience growing up in the 60s. Orwell felt like this in the 40s. I think this is a pretty much an eternal struggle. Yeah, that's what the system does. It forces you to conform in order to literally survive. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of knowledge to be able to try and stray away from that because that's what it's built to do from a very young age is just keep us within it. Terry Gilliam, you know, is obviously a nonconformist, somebody who really wants to thumb his nose and he's suffered for it in his film career, I guess. You know, it's very hard for him to get films made. I noticed that his films look a lot like Orson Welles' films, and Orson Welles had the same problem. Mm. I don't know if Welles was as much a rebel as just um, such an individualist that he just had to have everything his way. He felt like he knew what was right. I mean, he was making art. He's an artist. Get ready to pay the price. Yeah. In some cases, you can succeed and break through, but, you know, you never know. In some cases, you get built up into a huge myth you know, Vincent van Gogh, right? Horrible uh, life. Horrible life. Great reputation after he's dead. Great post-life, yeah. yeah. Um, Olivia, you did research into the making of the film, and this seems like a really good time to talk about that. What did you find out? Yeah, I found out a lot of interesting stuff. I watched an interview with Gilliam first, and something that struck me was he described having his desk just full of cartoons that were just images that came to his brain, and he drew them just he would need to put them down. And he says, I didn't put any order to them. They just completely fell together in perfect order. No thought on my part. And all he did was had the ability to recognize it. And that's pretty much how this movie was born. It was just this random compilation of cartoons. Wow. Um, yeah. And he went through a few different writers on it, too, because I don't think he was ever completely satisfied. He was definitely very picky. Did you realize that his long-term collaborator, Charles McEwen, who... Basically, the three writers that get credit are Gilliam, Charles McEwen, and Tom Stoppard, the famous playwright. So Charles McEwen is in the film. He's the guy with the big nose who says, I'm kind of a whiz with computers and then doesn't know how to turn his computer on. Oh, so he's fighting with the desk. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes is that finally Sammy gets the position and he goes into what's essentially a half office and his desk is halfway in the wall. And when he tries to sit down at it, it gets pulled to the other side so he has no desk all his stuff falls off and then he pulls it back and it turns out he's fighting with the guy who's in the office right next door to his played by charles McEwen, the co-writer and they're fighting over this one desk trying to share those resources that reminds me of today <laughs> that's the capitalist critique right is that there's these guys at the top that got everything and then we're mm -hmm. fighting for the scraps yeah. And it's just so inefficient too. Like efficiency seems to be an issue for this dystopian world. It goes from uh, Ministry of Information, which is a chaotic, crazy place. They're all watching Westerns on TV. And his boss, wonderfully played by Ian Holm, is an insecure mess. And then he gets promoted to information retrieval. It's a huge room. I think the only room in the whole film that doesn't have ducts wrecking it. 
And he steps in, he says, oh, hi, I'm a, the man by the desk says, we know who you are. Mm. We are information retrieval. The elevator is ready for you. And then when he gets up into his office, it's a half an office. There's just as much chaos upstairs where you don't see it. And there doesn't seem to be anybody in charge of anything. I mean, who's the villain in this movie and who's in charge? Well, you don't see the oppressor around you. So I think that was intentional to not have a singular villain, really. I got another question for Olive and Grace. We talked about characters and we've talked about a bunch of different scenes, but there are any particular favorite scenes in the movie for each of you? I don't know if I would say that this is my favorite scene, but those creepy things, the forces of darkness, I think they were called, those creepy little baby mask things. I just thought that was so weird and it just very much etched into my mind. What do you think the point was of the baby masks? I read something interesting about it when I was doing some research. They were not able to really complete his vision. He had very specific drawings, but what he was going for, well, first it was inspired by a mask that his mother had given him, which I think is weird. And he wanted it to be like an infant, but also decaying to represent both the beginning and ending of life. Nice. And it becomes very (laughs) prominent in the big final scene which was shot inside of the cooling tower of a nuclear reactor. Actually, it's the cooling tower for a coal-powered electric plant that was built in about 1948. In the documentary, I think I said that it was a nuclear power plant. Now that, yeah, it's funny because those cooling towers, they look like nuclear power plant towers. Mm. But no, it's the Croydon B complex, which is in the south of London, believe it or not. And it had been decommissioned right before they started shooting the film in 1984. and it was a coal-powered plant. Essentially, it's this huge dome, like a huge round room. And in the very center of it is where the information extraction is going to happen with Michael Palin coming in wearing the baby mask. The only way you could get to this was through these very narrow walkways where literally they could have fallen off either side. Uh, It's like a 17-foot drop, really dangerous. So there's one track that was wide enough for the camera to dolly on, but all the rest were like nine inches and actors had to stand on them. And at the end, in the rescue, these stuntmen rappel down 35 feet and they have to land on these nine inch wide slats. So most of this is practical effects, right? It's not heavy CGI. Not that, no. Well, there's no CGI. And so George Lucas had CGI with Star Wars and all that. But this film was made for $14 million. And It's a huge, huge film. The production design is insane. It's amazing that he got it in on budget, but he actually did get it in on time and on budget. That actually led to the issues with the release. Before we get there, I wanted to mention one other thing that Grace, in particular, I thought you might be interested in. And Olive, I don't know, have you seen Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, which we reviewed on episode two? Mm -mm. Grace, did you notice any of the Modern Times references? No, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, there's a breakfast scene early on where there's machines are making breakfast and dropping the toast. And then yeah, the coffee okay. maker spins over and actually ends up soaking yeah, the toast. None of by... it was working. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the bucolic scene, which kind of mirrors the end of modern times. Sam and Jill have escaped to the countryside and they're living in this little cottage in the middle of right. the woods. I was thinking, okay. this guy's seen as chaplain. 
Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That little home is the only other space that doesn't have ducts in it. They've escaped. Sure. And those are movies that are about 50 years apart. So the release of the film was really fraught. What happened was 20th Century Fox had international rights and they had released the Terry Gilliam cut, which was two hours and 21 minutes. He was contractually required by Universal for domestic to deliver, I think, a two hour and five minute cut. But when the executives saw the movie, they were not only unhappy with the length because they wanted to get more screenings in at night, but they were really unhappy with the ending because the ending is not 100% unhappy, but pretty damn close, right? Basically says the only escape from a totalitarian society is in your dreams. And they had test screenings that were disastrous. I'm sure they were doing the typical test screenings. The couple of the guys at Universal said, this is a specialty film. It's an art house film, but we don't release art house films. We release big films. And the head of Universal, Sid Scheinberg, said, there's so much good stuff here. Let's make it a happy ending where love conquers all and cut it down. And so without Gilliam's consent, Gillian had final cut as long as he delivered it on time. But he thought like, what's what's 10, 15 minutes between friends, right? But the studio was adamant about it. So they did a recut, a 96-minute version. So literally 45 minutes shorter, where it ends with the happy ending of them in the bucolic paradise. And that was actually shown on TV. But Gilliam was desperate for them to release his version and Universal wouldn't do it. So what he started to do was to have clandestine screenings for like college students. And then at one point for the Los Angeles film critics. And the stories about this are kind of wild. First of all, he took out an ad in Variety that he paid for himself, Variety, the publication that everybody in the industry read at the time, full page ad that said, Dear Sid Scheinberg, when will you release my movie? Terry Gilliam. And so he made it personal. And Scheinberg was always a behind the scenes guy, totally upset. He was the head of Universal Pictures, a legendary guy, really upset about this, right? And so they tried to have a screening at USC and the lawyers from Universal stopped it. They said, you can show a clip and Gilliam is literally talking to the students while fielding calls from his lawyer, who's talking to the lawyer. And he's telling the students, this is how the movie business really works. This is what you really do. You only spend a little time on set. Then they can't show it at USC, but the students are totally in favor, right? Later that night, they go to Cal Arts. And again, they're allowed to show a clip. And he says, well, I'm going to show a clip as the whole movie. Cal Arts, the school that was started by Walt Disney. And most of the people who are in Pixar today went through Cal Arts. Yeah. And Tim Burton, a lot of great people went through Cal Arts and John Lasseter. And it was an incredibly hot room. There was no air. People were stacked on top of desks, on top of each other. And the students, of course, loved it. And they loved the anti-authoritarian thing. And then they screened it for the Los Angeles film critics in the back room of the Los Angeles gun club. <laughs> Swear to God. Oh my so God. the film critics had never seen a movie in the Los Angeles gun club. And they're in the back of it. There's no guns there, right? And it's a small room, you know, not like a big movie theater. Then they voted and they voted it best screenplay, best director, and best film. And it had never been released in the US. Wow. And by the way, the same weekend that Universal's biggest picture of the year, Out of Africa, came out, which you know they had huge high hopes for. It was a classy, expensive production. Robert One Rutherford. best picture. Yes, but it didn't win any LA Film Critic Awards. So, right. and those came first. So it won nothing. And 
they were like, oh, we, we better release Brazil. So they released Brazil and it did, I think, four or five million dollars in the box office. Basically, when all was said and done, they made back their money like just. So it was not a hit for Universal, but it's now a classic. It's in their library. People love it. Gilliam ended up going back to Universal years later to make 12 Monkeys. Hmm. Very good movie. So all's well that ends well. And Gilliam, and this was so interesting, the interview that I saw, he says he was happy that the version was out, that the studio cut, so that people, because as long as they could see his version, they could see the difference between what a studio produces and what an artist produces. Right. So here's something I think is interesting. Sid Scheinberg, the villain of the story, and Gilliam the hero, and that's the way I feel. But if you think about what Scheinberg was doing, I mean, the changes that he made were, one, he made the beginning more clear, and we see that Grace had trouble with the beginning. It wasn't really clear, why is he going to their house, and who is this? You know, he just shot inserts of, like, Buttle on the door mm-hmm. and all that. So you knew better what was going on, like, the first time you saw it. So you've seen the TV version. You've I've seen, seen the, the TV version, yeah. yeah. And the other thing he did is, uh, yeah, the happy ending. I mean, the changes aren't as extreme as a lot of people say, but they ruin the film totally anyway. <laughs> but they're all... For good reasons, you know, and that's the experience I've had with, you know, studios <laughs> is they're full of intelligent people with good reasons, but they wreck things. Anyway, all the changes, you know, make perfect sense, except the film ends up meaning, oh, if you're really nice and you have love in your heart, everything will come out okay. And that's a very different message than what the yeah. film was supposed to have. I think that speaks directly to what the film is exactly. about. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, because that's what society wants you to think, that everything can be tied into a neat bow if you just follow the rules. Let me pose a question. One of the things about going out to the movies is that you have to get to your car, you have to pay for tickets, the prices keep going up. If you're a parent, you got babysitters that you're paying for. If you're going to have dinner with that, even if it's fast food these days, I mean, you know, a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, 150 bucks to go to the movies with everything in, not unusual, right? Do you want to go to a movie and come out having been disturbed and troubled? Or do you want to come out feeling lighter and happier? And even though the characters may have gone through hell at the end, you kind of feel the love or home or family or comfort. Question for you guys. This is such a hard question. You can go yeah, ahead. Because there's like a time and a place for both. But I think the most impactful movie theater experiences are when the movie is like disturbing. <laughs> like I can watch the uplifting ones at home, but I like movies that have messy endings, like don't make you feel happy, but they invoke something disturbing because it's just a stronger feeling. I don't know. And I think the ending for this worked really well. It just felt right. Yeah. The happy ending would have been like, that's, that's not right. (laughs) I agree. Definitely. When I watch a movie with a happy ending, I feel better, but I don't feel as moved. And I probably will maybe like the movie a little less like Titanic and Moulin Rouge are some of my favorite Mm -hmm. just tragic tragic (laughs) endings also Get Out is one of my favorite movies but I do love that ending because it it is a relief like after going through hell in that movie then you're like oh thank god and I don't know if you guys know but there's also an alternate ending that was made to Get Out where he ends up in jail and I watched that and I was like yeah I like the original better this is too sad so I do think it can depend because Dark endings can be 
warning signs that are really impactful, Mm -hmm. but they can also be really hopeless sometimes. And I think Get Out benefited from that hopeful ending. Like we're not completely doomed. So yeah, that's why I said it's a hard question. I think it can depend. Such an interesting question about Get Out. They reshot that ending. But I also think Get Out has a little bit of a surreal goofiness to it, right? There's a lot of satire. I mean, the whole thing about exchanging brains is complete bullshit and we're all laughing, but we're still caught up in the story because like you were talking about earlier, you care about the character. Yeah. Right. I think you have to earn it. I mean, when I think about unhappy ending movies like Chinatown, pretty dark, right? Terrible. Right. But I mean, it's a great ending. And I think if you earn it, it's okay. I think you mentioned a movie just now that had a kind of an unhappy ending. Moulin Rouge or Titanic? Well, Titanic's an interesting case, right? Because Titanic, Jack doesn't live, spoiler alert, and she throws away the jewel like a moron, but okay, that's fine. But there still is a sense of satisfaction that she's come full circle and all these other people in the modern era have learned something they didn't know before. So it's not a 100% downer ending, right? Yeah, totally. I think there's one more thing I wanted to ask. So about the terrorism. At one point, Jill says, have you ever seen a terrorist? Who do you think the terrorists are, since we never see any? My thought was Robert De Niro, his character, and maybe his people were the terrorists as like the rebels to society. I was thinking maybe like an inside job. Maybe it's the government. I was going more that direction. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say De Niro, because De Niro is one of the only heroic characters in the movie. Jill's a little bit heroic, but she's sort of powerless. And I would also argue that we don't really know that De Niro dies at the end. That whole paper thing is part of his fantasy. So De Niro can be a mythic hero that lives on. But, you know, is he really helping people? I mean, so he's fixing the air conditioning. And meanwhile... They're all in danger of being found out by information, you know, services. It's a very trivial thing, the air conditioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the government doesn't take it trivially, right? I mean, this whole film starts out because they want to kill Tuttle, but they get Buttle. I want to make an argument that what De Niro does is heroic because the thing that he's doing is making people's lives better. You know, this air conditioning is essentially life, right? It's the air that you breathe. And I think what's kind of the goofy fun part of his heroics is that, yeah, he's not killing bad guys or beating back the government. He's just running around like your friendly neighborhood handyman, yeah. like Spider-Man. He's just being efficient. <laughs> That's right. I, I want to say one thing murdered. about De Niro, because he's such a fascinating actor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard this from other directors that worked with him. He's extremely nervous. I mean, he really prepares very carefully for parts. Even this little part, the script said his technical abilities are like a surgeon. And because of that line, he went and spent days observing brain operations. (laughs) But because of that, he came up with those glasses with the lights in them. And that was his idea. So (laughs) it yields stuff. And Gilliam said that the first day of shooting, De Niro was already in costume and made up by four in the morning. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's just like endless takes over and over and over again. You know, just a lot of attention had to be paid to him. Olivia, what was the thing that you wanted to bring up that we hadn't covered yet? Yeah, I just wanted to say a little bit about what I found out about the special effects without CGI, because I thought it was really interesting, specifically the flying scenes. They meant to have Jonathan Price in a harness in the sky for the whole thing, but it was super uncomfortable and the shots ended up being a lot more complicated than they thought. So almost every single shot they said, except maybe two, 
of the flying scenes is just a little eight inch model <laughs> that they had flying against wow. a, a backdrop of the sky and then fake clouds and like really bright lights pointed at the camera. If you watch some of them, you can see like these just really bright lights coming down that, and they took hundreds and hundreds of shots and any of them where you could see a wire, they just cut them. So, but I, I thought it was impressive that they could get any without the wires. Like, I don't know how right. they were able to pull these things off. And it's just amazing how creative they had to be before computers. Mm -hmm. That's yes. old Hollywood knowledge, or I guess it was done in England. So it's probably old Pinewood studio guys who know how to. So those flying sequences, they blew in steam for the clouds and they had some cotton clouds also, but to make it look really big, they shot it at five times normal speed. So when you play it back, it's one fifth. It's really, really slow motion. And that's what gives it that kind of elegant grandeur, you know? Dreamy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time for us to give our final reactions over here. The two questions we always ask are, would you recommend this to a friend? And if so, which friends? All friends, some friends. Would you recommend this to anyone? Our star system, which is based on the idea that you have up to four stars and you can do half stars. Four stars means it's not only a great movie, but you'd put it in your top 10, top 20, top 30 list. It touched you personally in some way. Maybe it was meaningful to your life or feels like it will be in the future. Three and a half stars is an A. Three stars, no shame. That's an A minus. Maybe it's a great film, but it was flawed or you wish something was better. Then you've got your two and a half, which is a B plus. Your two stars is a B minus. One and a half and one, pretty low. Half star means it's so bad, it's good. And no movie gets no stars because it is so hard to make a movie, as Terry Gilliam and others have learned. I'm going to start with Grace. How many stars would you award it? And who, if anyone, would you recommend the movie to? I'm going to give it three stars because I couldn't identify really with the characters, but I really loved it visually. And I loved the dystopian message. I thought that was very interesting. And I love the anti-authoritarian stance. And I would recommend it to anyone who likes sci-fi or dystopian films like this, or anyone who's a Monty Python fan. So probably my cousin, she would love it. Because we were <laughs> arguing earlier today, because I'm not a huge Monty Python fan. And she was like, what? I was like, well, you should watch Brazil. <laughs> I cannot tell you how annoying myself and everybody I knew in high school were because that was when Monty Python came out and we would all repeat the bits <laughs> walking all through long. the high school hallways. <laughs> right. I would have steered clear. <laughs> Not dead yet. <laughs> Olivia, how do you fall on this? Yeah, I'm with Grace. I give it a three. I respect it. I found the visual effects very impressive and interesting. I thought it was super funny and the satire was wonderful, but yeah, characterization could have been stronger. I think it was definitely difficult to follow and had some, some minor plot holes and it wasn't mimicking real life, but it felt very distant from real life and like at moments very hard to connect to. So I give it a three and I think I would recommend it to... I think it has to be someone who likes movies. An average non-movie fan probably might be confused. So someone who likes movies. And then also, if I know that they are particularly interested in social justice or anti-establishment ideals, that would be the target audience. I love it. Would you see it again? I would. Yeah. I think 
it's definitely one of those movies that you could see for the second time in a completely different way. Yeah, and you definitely would get more. Right? There's so much detail in the mm-hmm. frame, especially if you get to see it on a big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I always reserve the right to go last. So, David, you're next. Okay. I have to give it a four, not because it's perfect, because it isn't. I don't like his hairstyle when he's flying around. <laughs> I thought maybe the flying around scenes went too long. Also, the end, the big chase to get out goes on too long for me. But first of all, I'm a huge Monty Python fan. I mean, when it came out in the United States, I was in high school, so I was just the right age. And like you say, me and my friends were all going around quoting Monty Python all day and all the girls were steering clear. (laughs) And and the amount of detail, I mean, people don't know Harvey Kurtzman's work. He started Mad Magazine. He only did like the first four or five issues of it. It's so detailed. It's so dense. There's so much thought and just visual detail in it, really rich. And I think Gilliam really learned that lesson well. And I can watch the movie over and over again. I'm always seeing new things. When I first saw it, I thought it was hilarious. The older I got, the more, you know, I started seeing, well, all these people are dying. But I think it's for the cynic in all of us. So I would recommend it to anyone who's felt cynical at any time in their life. I'd recommend this film. Certainly anyone who likes Monty Python and certainly anyone who wants to give it to the man, (laughs) I'd check out Brazil. So... I'm going to split the difference. I'm a three and a halfer on this one. I think this is a level work. It doesn't quite go all the way for me to like my top films of all time, just because that's a crowded list. But here's the reasons why I totally understand why someone would give it four stars. The combination of humor with the stark messages, you know, a lot of people try it and it doesn't work. You see people that are trying to do it. The comedy isn't really funny enough or it's too obvious at points, even though they're sticking it to the man or as the stick to the man stuff isn't really rigorous enough. This one does both of those things beautifully. There's so much humor in it. There really are uproarious things. And I want to say two things in particular. One is that the 80s were not the best era for Hollywood movies. And it wasn't until the independent film revolution of the 1990s that things really got great. You have Blue Velvet, you have Raging Bull, you have some really good Hollywood industry movies. But this movie just broke all the rules. Like when you went to the theater to see this after hearing about the battles and everything, you felt like you were part of a movement and you were seeing something special. And the movie delivers on all those levels, despite the bad hairdo. You know, most of it isn't really dated at all. You know, it's there's a few moments, but not that bad for 80s movies. And then the last thing I think makes it an A-level film is it sticks the ending. You know, it goes on a little bit long. I felt that this time, the whole chase. But when you come back out of the chase and it leaves you with this feeling that in this kind of world, the guy who's your family friend or whatever, if he's part of the system, good luck. He's not going to save you if it's his ass on the line, too. And the system will perpetuate itself. And at least we have our quote unquote hero smiling at the end as he's living in his dreams. His two torturers say, oh, I think he got away from us. Even though it's a down ending, it's a little, (laughs) it's ironic down, right? So there's a little slight plus. And it's so rare that a movie like this doesn't peter out at the end. You know, it really sticks it and you walk away from it going like, oh my God, I may disagree with this or that, but that was something, you know, that was worthy. So bravo. I mean, I think it's his masterpiece. Yeah, it is. Although he made a couple of, I mean, I love the Fisher King and I love 12 Monkeys. 
Yeah. So the Fisher King is the most accessible Terry Gilliam movie, but that was a job. That's a movie that came to him, not a movie that he generated. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's character based. So it's very different than this. Yeah. If you two ever see the Fisher King, you'll relate to the characters. You'll love them. Mercedes Ruel won Best Supporting Actress. Jeff Bridges is great in it. Robin Williams is great in it. It's fantastic. And one thing about 12 Monkeys is Brad Pitt does a Terry Gilliam impersonation throughout the entire film. Oh, is he doing Terry? I think so. That's just my opinion. But I think if you look at the two of them, one after the other, and he is, I think. And he took that and used a lot of that in Fight Club as well, Brad Pitt. Yeah, it was interesting. When I saw 12 Monkeys, that was the first time that I thought Brad Pitt was a great actor. Yeah. He juices it. So anyway, our average came out to just under 3.4. So, you know. An A. That's an A. Yeah. That's an A. But more of an A for the old guys than for the young (laughs) women. (laughs) I could see myself bumping up to a 3.5 with another watch. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) No, I appreciate appreciate a lot of it. I think it just was definitely an overwhelming. Yeah, that's a good word for it. The message was awesome. That's what I like about it. If you ever get a chance to see it in a theater... I mean, there's so much eye candy in this movie, and it yeah. doesn't look like any other movie, like an old picture book look or something, but gone wacky. Yeah. Like an ad magazine or something. All right. If you want to stream Brazil for yourself, it is currently available to rent or buy in certain places from Amazon, Apple TV, YouTube, Voodoo, DirecTV, Redbox, and Spectrum. If you like our show, please tell your friends to rate and review it so others can find us as well. Generation Film is an Electrocast production. Our executive producers are myself, Mark Netter, and Peter Rafelson. Our producer is David Tausick, my co-host. Our editor is Marcus Campito for this episode. I want to thank all of the panelists today, co-host David, Grace, and Olive. And please join us on our next episode when we will see how another classic film plays for a new generation of movie lovers. It will be Alfred Hitchcock's horror blockbuster milestone Psycho on Generation Film. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric ass. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid.